How was everybody? Good. Good. That, that was cool. Good. I'm so congested today. If I sound like Kermit the Frog today, just forgive me. I mean, that's not how I normally sound. Um, but uh, yeah, my allergies, man, they've been kicking my tail the last couple of days. Hey, we had a, a, a really busy week this week at church. Were there any men who were at the Men's Summit Friday? A couple of you guys? Yeah, good. Uh, we had 323 men show up, and we launched 10 men's groups uh, from Friday, which is really, really encouraging, right? That's really cool, right? Um, had some men that really did a lot of work and put that together, and I was really, really proud of our, our team, and uh, it was a really, really, really great night. And um, earlier that week, we had an interest meeting for our Woodbury church plant. I think we had about 130 people show up who were interested in helping start that church in Woodbury, and Josh did a fantastic job with that. Let me tell you something neat. I just want to brag uh, a little bit, not just on our team, but um, just on what God's doing. Uh, we heard from a lot of people that when we were going to go out there, we we're going to receive a lot of opposition, and not from the non-Christians, but we, you know, we were told we were going to you know, run in butt, butt heads with a lot of the established churches out there. And um, I had the pastor of the, the biggest church of Christ out there, the one right there on the hill, gave me a call and um, said, hey, would you like to get some lunch? And I was like, I'd, I'd be honored to. Yes, thank you. And Went and met this guy. I don't know if you know who Pastor Daniel Hayes is. He's the biggest man I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, he's uh, Brooker times like three, right? He's just a big dude. And he's just wide and like he could crush you, you know? And I'm um, sitting there waiting for him at a, a restaurant in Woodbury and he walks in and um, we both cried and prayed for each other. And he said, I am so ecstatic that you guys are coming here because you're going to help us advance the kingdom in our community. And he said, I'm looking so forward to partnering with Josh and creating a community with Josh and building a kingdom out here. So, a lot of credit, a lot of credit and uh, kudos to that church and to that pastor. What a great man, what a humble man, and um, very, very cool to see what God's doing out there. So, that's neat. If you uh, haven't been with us before, or if you've been with us for a long time, and I don't know, you had a momentary lapse of uh, forgetfulness in the last week, we've been in the Gospel of John for a long time. And we just wrapped up, we're about to wrap up with chapter 13, and we'll do all chapter 14 today. Let me kind of catch you up to where we are, if you haven't been here. We are in the Last Supper, right? Jesus is up in the upper room with his 12 disciples. Leonardo da Vinci's in the corner painting this whole scene, and this is all going on, right? <laughs> it's, that was a bad joke, right? An art joke. That was a nerd joke. I'm really sorry. Uh, and so... Um, Jesus is up there with his 12 disciples, and he's in the last 24 hours of his life, and so he's reiterating, and he's kind of reinforcing all these things he's been pouring into these men for the last three and a half years, right? Judas, we know, is going to betray him. He's left the room, so there's only the 11 left, and they're wrapping up the Last Supper, and at this point, Jesus is going to go out into the garden with his disciples. He's eventually going to be arrested, and we're going to kind of reach the climax of the gospel, if you will, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, all with them just the next 24 hours or so of where we are at in the story. Now, one of the things that Jesus told his disciples as he's sitting there, very, very important, he said, I give you a new command, I need you to go out and love. Now, it's not enough just to go out and love. He said, love like I love you. So we talked about last week that there is a proper way to love people. There's a method by which we are to love people, and Jesus gives us that, and we're given that through the Spirit, through Paul in the book of Romans chapter 12, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we kind of get a definition of what love is. And we talked about that last week, right? It was, it was really fun to talk about. This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to get into a part of God that a lot of us are a little intimidated by, we don't like to talk about a little bit, the Holy Spirit. 
And we're going to ask ourselves, are we neglecting a key component of who God is, right? We have the Father, Son, Spirit. We like to talk about God the Father. We like to talk about Christ the Son. Sometimes we get a little weirded out by the Holy Spirit so we don't go there, right? But today we're going to go there. Why? Because Jesus wants us to. It's in his word, right? So we got to go that direction, and that's the way we're going to go. So we're going to pray. Uh, if you just want to say a prayer that God opens up my nostrils, that'd be wonderful, right? And um, we'll dive into the scripture. You should have notes in front of you. Uh, you should have, if you have your Bible, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, uh, 13th chapter at the very tail end of it. We're going to start off in verse 36. And um, if you have the smart, smartphone, version app, all that's on there. So you should be in good shape, okay? So let me pray. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I just pray that you keep your hand on us today. God, open up our eyes today. Open up our ears, Lord. Help us to understand what you're saying, Lord. Let your spirit reveal to us, God, what we need to get from the scripture today. Father, if there's any non-believers in this place, Lord, I pray that just something's spoken today, or maybe even just the kindness they've received since they've been in here, God, I pray that something just prompts them to continue seeking the truth, Lord. I pray, God, that uh, you'll bless all the other churches in our community, that you'll bless the, bless the nonprofits in our community, that you'll help us to keep advancing your kingdom, Lord. We love you, God, and I'm a very flawed man, but God, your word is flawless, and for some reason you've given me the, the task of presenting a portion of it today. God, have grace on me. Lord, have mercy on me, Jesus. I need it. It's in your name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys. Let's start at verse 36. I'm going to read a little bit, and I'll do my best to break it down. Remember, they're at the Last Supper, okay? Judas has just left the building. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Lord, Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus replied, will you lay your life down for me? I assure you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me, Peter, three times. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and if not, I would have told you. I'm not going away to, pre I am going away to prepare a place for you, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I am going. Okay, so in true Peter fashion, right, just as Jesus kind of pauses for a second to take a breath, Peter jumps right in there and he says, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come. And so he says, well, why can't I go with you right now, Peter says. He goes, I would die for you. I would give my life for you. And at this point, we see Jesus very gently humble Peter and put him in his place. He said, you say that you would die for me, Peter, but tonight you're going to deny, to deny me three times. And here's how we see that Peter is humbled. We don't hear from Peter again for the next four chapters. He is silent, right? He does not say anything for a while. He's digesting this. Now, something he says is kind of interesting because we say it too. We often say we would die for our faith, and that's good. We should be at a point where we would die for our faith. But we say we would die for our faith, and sometimes I believe Jesus looks at us and says, you say you would die for me, but the harder part is, will you live for me every single day? When times get tough, when people make you question, when life kind of comes at us, will we wake up every morning and say, you know, I would die for Jesus, but today I'm going to live for him, right? Tomorrow I'm going to live for him. This week I'm going to live for him. And so the disciples 
they had seen the miracles. They saw the 5,000 being fed. They saw Lazarus raised from the grave. They saw all these things. But now they're going to have to commit to Jesus in a whole new level. They're going to have to say, I trust you with my day-to-day life. I trust you with everything. Every morning when I wake up, Jesus, I trust you. And so Jesus knew that they were troubled. He knew that they were stressed, right? He even says, your hearts are troubled. So he encourages them by telling them about where they're going to end up. Guys, one day, I'm leaving this earth right now to prepare a home for you. And the splendor of this eternal home, he wanted to talk about. That's okay. Every once in a while, we need to talk about heaven. It's a reminder of where our destination is. But the most remarkable thing about heaven is not the decadence of the mansions and the condos we're going to be living in. At this time, they didn't even know what heaven was going to look like. All the disciples knew is that heaven was going to be with Jesus. That's all they cared about. It wasn't the decadence of it. But the beauty is, is not the fact that we're going to live in a nice place. It's the fact that there is plenty of room, that Jesus is preparing a place for us, and that anyone who wants to come that receives the invitation, they can go. There's lots of room, and that we are migrating through this tough life, but we have this fantastic destination at the end of it. And he says, if I go to prepare this place for you, one day I'm going to come back and get you. I'll receive you, and we'll go there. Now, if you want to, just for fun, Revelations 21 gives us a very good depiction of what heaven is going to look like. It's gorgeous, right? Streets of gold and pearly gates and these isotropic stones that are going to be made up in the foundations. It's just all this beauty that he talks about. It's amazing. But the ultimate glory of heaven is not the aesthetics. The ultimate glory of heaven is that Jesus will be there. That's the ultimate glory, is that we will get to see him, we will understand him, and we can take him in all of his majesty, right? We will be able to take all of it in. So the setting of this opening is about the kind of peace that we can only receive through Jesus Christ. That's the way we're going, okay? All right, next part. So Lord, Thomas said, so another disciple speaks up, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. Lord, said Philip, another disciple, show us the Father. That's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you all this time without you knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? He's called Doubting Thomas. He's called the skeptic. This is what my wife used to be once upon a time. My wife was a chemist, a scientist, right? My wife would come home from work, and I'm like, hey, how was your day? And she's like, awesome. I got to measure the viscosity of substances today. And I'm like, "Uh, that sounds like my hell, right? To measure like the thickness of liquids all day long to these like little different levels. And that sounds terrible to me, but that's what she liked, right? She was into science. She was into facts. She wanted proof. Thomas was kind of like that, right? He was a guy that said, if I'm going to believe it, You have to show it to me. And he says, how are we going to know the way to get to where you're going when we don't know, right? How can we know the way? And so Jesus reiterates the way. He says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one gets to heaven. No one gets to the Father except through me. So let me break that down. 
When Jesus says he's the way, Jesus is the way by which we are reconciled to our creator, God. He is the truth that illuminates what is wrong in our lives and what illuminates the path by which we must walk. And he is also the life that regenerates us. Essentially, Jesus leaves no room for universalism. Jesus is never ambiguous. He's right to the point. How do you want to get to heaven? Me. How do you want to meet God? It's through me. There's no other pathway. It has to come through me. So we kind of pick on the disciples sometimes. And we say, well, these guys have been living with Jesus for three and a half years. Why do they still need to be convinced of this? Quite frankly, the same reason why you and I have been Christians for all these years and we still need convincing. Because life happens to us, right? Things are going good. We've seen God do miraculous things. We've seen God save people's souls and their bodies and marriages and relationships and our children and seen all these amazing things. But then life kind of throws some darts at us, right? Some bad things happen and we step back and we say, God, remind me again. Remind me again of who you are. Remind me again of the way that I'm supposed to walk. So we constantly have to be working to know Jesus better and better and better because we're all going to have doubts. Every single one of you will look in the mirror sometime in your Christian walk and say, what in the heck am I doing? All of you will do that. And if you haven't done it yet, wait for it. It will come. And in those times, we have to be humble enough and vulnerable enough to say, God, help me here. God, explain to me this. Show me in your word what I'm supposed to be doing. So Thomas was the skeptic. And Philip then pipes up and he goes, okay, Jesus, if you can just show us the Father, that'll be enough. We'll be quiet, right? And so for the last three and a half years, Jesus has been showing them the Father. He's been talking about the Father, and in his twilight hours, Jesus is sitting there with his disciples. Philip looks at him and says, just show us God, please. Just show us God. And Jesus' response is huge. I love what the old King James says. In the King James Version, Jesus looks at Philip and says, the Father and I are one. If you've looked at me, you have seen the Father. And so he's a little frustrated with Phil. He said, you've been looking at the Father for the last three and a half years. You've got to see into the eyes of God all this time. And you've missed it, Philip. You've missed it. And so if we remember the thesis of this book, or at least my thesis of this book, is that believing is seen. And the world comes at it completely different. They say, if I can see it, well, then I'll believe it. And that's just not the way God works. God says, believe in me, and then you're going to see amazing things. So in our lives, in the most practical levels, in our spiritual health, our success in life with our business or our work, our families, our marriages, our relationships, everything hinges on the fact if we will be dependent, if we will be humble and willing to engage our Creator. If we will open our eyes and engage our Creator, He will help us see what He is doing in us and around us, to us and for us, if we will just have enough guts to engage Him and open our eyes. The problem with the disciples, and again, I know it's easy to pick on them, but the problem with the disciples is they had seen Jesus do all these miraculous things, right? But they weren't listening to His Word enough. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. They saw the dead raised. They saw the sick healed. They saw demons cast out of people. They saw these things, but they weren't listening carefully enough to what Jesus was teaching them. And in frustration, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, well, if you don't believe my word, at least believe my works. But what we learn from that is this. This is important. Listen to me. Without the word of God, we have no sustenance when the emotions are absent. Let me say it one more time. 
If we don't have it here, we're not always going to feel it here. That's why we can't base our faith off sheer emotion. If we base it off sheer emotion, if you base your relationships off sheer emotion, I don't know how your marriage is, um, but every day you wake up, you grab your partner, you shake them, you go, I am so happy that we are married today, right? <laughs> I mean, I know that's how it happens with my wife, but I don't know how your dynamics are, but um, that was a lie, sorry. <laughs> but you don't wake up every, every single day looking at your kids being like, I am really glad that I'm a parent right now, right? Look at this, this clean, tidy house and how easy this is, right? I am so glad about this. Not every day do we feel it. Does that mean you kick your kids out or divorce your spouse? Of course not, because we have to step back from those times and go, you know what? I don't feel it right now, but I know what the truth is, and that woman's perfect for me. These kids are the best thing that's ever happened to me. I don't feel him right now, but I know because the word is in my heart that God is good that he's there, that he knows what he's doing, and he loves me, and he's looking out for me. I don't always feel it here. Jesus didn't always feel it here, but he knew who the Father was, and he knew what he was supposed to do. That's why we must balance out spirit and truth. That's why we must balance these things out, because you need both, okay? I got a little fiery there. Let me move to the next part. I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, here's what happens in this very, very short passage, okay? A couple of the most misinterpreted scriptures in the Gospel of John are in this little part, right? The first one comes in verse 12. It's been the center of debate for centuries. People will read this and they say, well, Jesus said we're going to do greater things than him. And they think that we're going to do cooler miracles than Christ. I don't know if one can do a cooler miracle than raising the dead and even raising yourself after you've died. I don't think we're going to top that, right? I think we can agree on that. So sometimes when we read the Word of God, we have to read it literally, that it means literally what it says. And so what Jesus did, if you were to look at this, if this was a world map, the F there on focusing would be Israel, right? This little bitty sliver of land in this vast world, right? So Jesus focused in on a little sliver of land, and he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead a couple of guys in this little sliver of land. I'm going to do some miracles, build up some faith, and then I'm going to release the rest of the globe to these guys. So when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you're going to do greater things than me, he meant geographically, you're going to cover a lot more area than me. You're going to touch a lot more people. The gospel is going to spread to hundreds of millions and even billions because of you. You're going to do much greater things than me. And what we see in that is that Jesus was a phenomenal leader and that we are to be a leader like Jesus is a leader. So that means any good leader, boss, parent, pastor, whatever it may be, we should want the ones coming after us to do greater things than us. Build bigger churches, reach more people, do greater community service, break our records, right? Take it up a notch, make it the best it can be, do it better than us. I want my children to lead more people to Christ than I have. I want them to be more successful in life than I've been. That's what we want because that's what Jesus did. So that, we cleared that up, right? The other part of Scripture that is very grossly misinterpreted is this idea that whatever we pray for in Jesus' name that we get. And that's not true. Listen, here's the thing about theology, 
your thoughts on Christ, right? You cannot form your theology by picking out one scripture of the Bible. You will get bad theology by that. Because if you do that, you can go into the Old Testament and it says that you can kill your kids if they're disobedient. You guys are like, really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so if you... T- <laughs> So if you take it out of context and if you don't read the entire book, if we don't study the entire message of the Bible, we're going to come to some very bad conclusions. And we can do that with the Scripture. And what happens is we get things like the name it and claim it theology. Oh, you just name it and claim it. Listen, guys, I can claim it in Jesus' name all day long that when I walk out to my 2002 Escape that it's really a 2017 Ferrari, but it's not going to happen. It may be great, but I mean, it's not going to happen. And so what happens is, is when we start taking Scripture like this out of context, it becomes a self-serving and arrogant and materialistic gospel. And Jesus is none of those things. Jesus is none of those things. It's important to know that no no theology should be built from one single verse or even cherry-picked verses from throughout the Bible. We must take it all, right? It's a complete story. And so when we pray the name of Jesus, we also need to pray the will of Jesus. Now, this is what it goes on to say later in John, and it said it much earlier in Exodus 20. Now, just saying Jesus' name is not a magic formula to get what we want, because the Bible says, it's one of the Ten Commandments, that we are to not use His name in vain. So when we use that name, we better do it with a lot of intentionality. We better do it in a positive, respectful manner. And John, the same author of this book, said that when we pray, we are to ask things according to His will. So whenever we ask something in Jesus' name according to His will, you will get what you want. You, and it's not what you want, it's ultimately what He wants, but your prayers will be answered. And in John's time, guys, we've lost this in our culture, a name meant something in John's time. Even people, when they named their children, they thought about it and prayed about it, and they wanted to name their kids in such a way to where maybe it would shape their character, it would shape their spirit, it would shape kind of the the power and influence that they would have. So when we speak Jesus' name, this is no game, right? This isn't just so I can have the kind of car I want to drive or trophy wife or whatever we want for our own selfishness. We are praying for God's will to be done and God's kingdom to be advanced, not just our selfish needs, okay? Hope that was okay. Next part. So if you love me, you will keep my commands. That's a, that's, guys, that's a sermon all in and of itself. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you do know Him because He remains with you, and He will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, Let let me pause there for a second, by the way. Kind of stinks for the other Judas, right? Just to be named that. So when we get to heaven and we're like, what's up, man? I'm Corey. He's like, I'm Judas. And you're like, he's like, no, 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 the other Judas. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not the world? 
Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but it is from the Father who sent me. So if we love Jesus, we will follow his commands. That's what Jesus said. If we love Jesus, we will follow his commands. And verse 15 brings up the method by which we know if we're Christians or not. If you've ever sat back and you're like, am I really a Christian? If you are following the words of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian. Now, if we are Christians, those who accept Christ, we were promised that we would be filled by the Spirit of Christ. We'll get to that later this year in Acts chapter 2 in detail. But the Holy Spirit... The counselor will help us navigate and prepare ourselves and others for the next life. You notice that's a capital C in your Bible. That means that the Holy Spirit is also God, right? The counselor with a capital C. And so Jesus said, the world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him. But he said, you know me. And because I remain with you, I will also be in you. I'm going to break that down here in a second. But here's what's about to happen. Jesus is about to leave this earth in bodily form, but return in spirit. He's going to leave in flesh and return in spirit. And that starts at the day of Pentecost, which is in Acts chapter 2. Again, we'll get to that later. But the 12 had him physically right there, right? You could hug him. He was right there, Jesus. But the whole world was about to get him, or at least have the chance to get him spiritually. Now, let me break down something Jesus said, and you can easily miss it if you just kind of skim over it. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm also coming. That's kind of weird. You're going away and coming back. Yes. So when Jesus said he was with them, that literally means when you break down the Greek, when you break down that he was with them, that means that he was literally standing beside them. He says, I was with you, but now I'm going to be in you. We often say, and I'm not saying it's incorrect, but we often say, man, Jesus was right beside me during that time. Eh, Maybe not. He wasn't right beside you. Now he was actually closer than next to us. He is in us. He's with us at the deepest core of us. Man, Jesus was right in front of me. No, no, he was inside of you, right? He was helping navigate the situation. And though we cannot see him now, The Holy Spirit is constantly present. It is our counselor that no longer would Jesus be limited by time and space while he was on earth, that he would be unleashed and he would be everywhere at all times with all people who would accept him, right? No longer limited to being in one geographical area. And so we're going to start seeing the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been given the, the fruit of the Spirit, which you can go into Galatians 5 and read that. We've been given the gifts of the Spirit. But our primary way of displaying that we have the Holy Spirit in us is by simply doing what Jesus tells us to do, is to go out and live like Jesus. And here's the thing, the Holy Spirit of God is not known by bizarre behavior, right? It's not by acting crazy or flopping around on the floor like a fish. That's not how the Holy Spirit is known. The Holy Spirit is known by the simple yet powerful demonstration of Jesus' ways. That's how the Holy Spirit is known not by outlandish behavior, but by the power of his simple instruction. Now, isn't it just like humanity to divide our faith on the one thing that Jesus said he was going to send to help us? We have been divided over the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. Some of us in this room, me included, we came from one camp that was way extreme. All we did was talk about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's all we talked about, right? 
We never talked about God the Father. We never talked talk, talk about Christ the Son. It was all about the Holy Spirit. And if all we do is focus on just that one component of God, it leads to bizarre mysticism. Let's just be for real. It leads people to be a little kooky, right? If you go to the other extreme, which some of you have been on this extreme, if we totally neglect the Holy Spirit and that side of God, it leads us to strict legalism. And so either one of these extremes is not right. We're supposed to find a place in the middle. And the reason why we talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit is because all of those have a role in us. And so here's the thing, and I should have made it hot pink and highlighted like I did last week. This is why we talk about all three parts of the Holy Trinity of God, because the relationship we have with God originates with the Father, it is brought to fruition by the cross and Jesus Christ, and it is then expressed through us by the Holy Spirit. We need all three of these. Our salvation originates with God, is come to fruition by the cross and by Jesus, and it is expressed through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need all three components of the triune God. And so we meet this second Judas, right? Um, other gospels call him Thaddeus, like we would have went by our middle names too, right? So anyways, also known as Thaddeus, he presents some confusion. This is the third disciple now, right? Who's kind of spoke up, fourth disciple in this chapter who spoke up and they're like, we don't get it yet. And what we see is that these disciples were comfortable with Jesus, they were comfortable enough to ask him questions. You guys know that your questions don't scare Jesus, right? They don't scare him. Ask, ask. And so Jesus reiterates that he will present himself to people who are willing to follow his word. And Jesus plainly says something that we need to lock way deep in our hearts, that if anyone loves me, you'll do what I tell you to do. If anyone loves me, they will keep my word, okay? Last part. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send Him in my name, and He will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives it. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, I'm going away so that the world may know that I love the Father. Just as the Father has commanded me, so I do. Get up. Let's leave this place. So how often do we need the Holy Spirit? Every day. <laughs> After Jesus rose from the grave, He poured out His Holy Spirit. He opened up understanding to His disciples. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. It opens up our understanding of the Scripture. It op opens up our understanding of the ways of God better. And the Holy Spirit is known as the Comforter, that it brings us a peace that passes all understanding, that no matter how nutty this world gets, we have a peace, we have a comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit of God, right? And without the Holy Spirit of God, we are completely incompetent by ourselves. The reason God's Spirit must reside in us is we are incapable of pleasing God 
unless we have Him. We are incapable of succeeding in this life without the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you automatically say, well, I know people who are very successful that don't love God. No, no, they may be successful by a different standard of the Bible, but the Bible's idea of success is sometimes dramatically different than ours. And true success, according to the Word of God, is being the best parent, student, worker, sibling, leader, spouse, etc., in accordance to God's will. That is success, is being in the will of God wherever we are in life. But we are only capable of being in that channel and being what we need to be if we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. And so Jesus says, here's what I came to bring you. I came to bring you peace. This is a word that seems to elude our culture right now, right? And maybe one of the most striking passages in this whole chapter is that he says, listen, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, I do not give it like the world gives. Now, this is important. One day I was riding to work a couple of weeks ago and I was listening to NPR. I like NPR about 75% of the time. So I'm listening to NPR. There was a story about how they're going to start getting into uh, some of the VA hospitals and working with vets about giving them medicinal marijuana to help them with their PTSD. Now, what I heard from that is, instead of counseling, instead of God getting in their lives, we're going to mask this, right? We're going to put another veneer over this problem and hope that it doesn't inconvenience us anymore, right? We're going to cover it up. Now, here's what the Lord comes to do. The Lord doesn't give peace like the world gives peace. He doesn't medicate it or mask it or cover it up and hope it goes away. God gets to the root of us and He pulls out whatever has stemmed us from, uh, whatever has stemmed up from this chaos and this disorder. And He says, look, I came to heal you, not give you peace like the world gives you by sedation and distraction. I've come to eradicate the problem. That's what Jesus Christ has come to do. You know why more people don't clap at that? Because it's a lot easier to go to a bottle than it is to the cross. It's a lot easier just to mask it and think that it doesn't exist than to get, let Jesus get into the core of us and uproot that junk, right? But that's what he came. He didn't come to do it like the world. He came to do it differently. And what we continue to see, as much as the world tries to mask these things, all we get is more and more chaos, and God is not a God of chaos. God is a God of order, according to his word. And Christ gives us a peace regardless of what life throws at us, regardless of what we have coming at us. God gives us a peace that passes all understanding. If you're in here and you're not a believer today, let me tell you what's so neat about our faith, that our contentment is not contingent on our jobs or our money or world politics or economies or any of those outside factors. Our contentment is based on the Holy Spirit inside of us, not the external factors that are trying to get at us. That's what's beautiful about our faith. It is contingent on our walk with God, not external things. And that is one thing that no one can take from you. They cannot take your relationship with God. They may take your head and everything you own, but they cannot take your relationship with Christ. And so Jesus says, okay, it's time to go, guys, right? They've wrapped up dinner, and it indicates that they're wrapping up their time together, but the, the conversation's not gonna stop. They're gonna go out into the garden. They're gonna talk some more. They're gonna pray. And what we see is this, our conversation also must continue. It must continue with Christ because we need to learn to work in the Spirit. Our conversation must continue so we can guard ourselves against sin that offends the Spirit. We must continue to talk to God to learn how to demonstrate love to the world by the power of the Spirit. So we need to keep in constant conversation with Christ. 
And the other reason why we need to keep in constant conversation with Christ is because we have an enemy. We have someone that's coming at us. I read this passage at the men's event the other day, 1 Peter 5, 8. We have an adversary, the devil, that walks around like a roaring lion looking for those he can devour. Now, when Jesus called him the ruler of the world, he's not really the ruler of the world. Satan doesn't literally rule this world. He has no power over God. What Jesus meant by that is he is the leading influence right now in the world. He is leading culture right now in our world. And Jesus made it clear, I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of Satan. And in fact, all of us in this room, none of us have to be afraid of Satan. As long as we have the Holy Spirit in us, we have nothing to fear. The devil cannot hurt us unless God allows him to do so. The only time we need to be afraid is if we've compromised our walk with Christ, then we need to be very concerned about the results of neglecting the Holy Spirit of God. That should concern us. That should concern us. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit. And maybe some of you in this room have kind of pushed this side away because it's uncomfortable, right? It's different. Maybe even a little weird at times to us. The first thing is this, though. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? We need the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit reveals the Scriptures. What I mean by that is this. I got my degree in English literature from MTSU, right? Had many great teachers. They teach the Bible, actually, in MTSU in the literature department. I don't know if you knew that or not. But they don't teach it from a spiritual perspective. It's called a great book. They put it on the same shelf as Milton and Chaucer and Shakespeare and Poe, right? Is the Holy Bible, right? It's a great piece of literature. Now, there are men that have dedicated, and women, who've dedicated their entire life to reading this as a great piece of literature, but they just don't get why people would die for the words in this book, because the Holy Spirit is not in them, and it has not revealed to them the true point of that book. We need the Holy Spirit to show us, reveal us what the Scripture is telling us to do. We must have the Holy Spirit to give us comfort and peace in chaotic and crazy times. Unless your 2016 was doing this, la, 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 la. You didn't notice that we are in the midst of a lot of chaos and confusion. We're in, in a world that doesn't know what is up, what is down, where to go, what to do. We don't know how to handle our families or our money or our institutions or our governments. We don't know how to do anything anymore. It has become chaos. It's become confusing. And in times like this, and it's not just in our country, we need the Holy Spirit to bring us back to center and to comfort us and tell us, hey, guys, I'm still in control. Hey, guys, I'm still in control. Right? We need that. And we also need counseling. We need to pray. There's a reason why God gave us the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of discernment, so we can have counsel when we have questions. God, help me with this. I don't understand. Either show me by your word or confirm with me in my spirit. God, what's going on here? And in these times of questioning, in these times of confusion, we have a counselor. We have someone to help us with that. We also need the Holy Spirit to go out into the world around us and empower us to engage others. To go out into this world without the Holy Spirit filling us up is like going into war without a weapon. And so we need God. We need the power of the Spirit. We need Him to speak through us and give us the words. We need to trust Him so we can go out and engage the world around us. Listen, as long as it's in the Bible, you have nothing to be afraid of. And I know some of you are apprehensive about talking about the Holy Spirit because speaking in tongues may freak you out or prophecy may freak you out or praying for someone who's sick and praying that God heals their body, that may freak you out. To pray about these things is sometimes uncomfortable and different, right? But when we get into the Word of God, listen, if the Word supports it, 
we better not deny it. And so we don't need to be afraid of the gifts. You don't need to be intimidated by those things. If it's in the Word of God, it's good. It's good. And so when we approach God, say, God, I don't want to be afraid of these things. Help me understand. Show me. And don't, don't be afraid. And we also need to be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. These are how Christians are supposed to look. We are supposed to be displaying these fruit, right? It says that a tree will be known by its fruit. There's this great story in the Bible where Jesus is walking with his disciples and there's this big, beautiful fig tree. We actually have a fig tree on the edge of our property. And so when you see a fig tree, there's this huge leaf that comes over, big, beautiful leaf, and that usually indicates that there's fruit underneath it. So you can lift the leaf and there's figs, right? And you can eat, pick them off and just eat these figs. So Jesus is walking, he sees what looks like should have been a very healthy fig tree. Walks up, lifts up the leaf, there is no fruit. What does he do? Looks at it, condemns it, it withers away, and it dies, right? There's a lesson in that. And what it says is this, is that if we say we're Christians, we better be displaying the fruit of Christianity. If we say we're something, we better be living it, we better be showing it. So, some of us may say that we've neglected that, if we're just being honest, right? We've neglected this portion of God a little bit because it's uncomfortable. That's okay. So if we've acknowledged that we've neglected a part of God, how do we change that? How do we invoke the Holy Spirit? How do we invite the Holy Spirit into our lives the way that He should be, right? The first is this. You guys have homework. The first is this. Read Galatians 5, and 23 and assess if we are showing others the fruit of our faith. Okay, here's what I'm supposed to be doing. Love, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control, all these things. Here's what God has wanted me to display. Am I doing that? And if we're not doing that, there's an issue, right? That I should be displaying those things. Your other piece of homework is to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. Now, here's the thing about the gifts of the Spirit. Paul opens up 1 Corinthians 12 with this. He says, I don't want there to be any confusion when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. That's how he opens it up. So if you're confused about the gifts of the Spirit, right, you need to go and read about those things. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And here's how I approach the gifts of the Spirit. Because different denominations and different people get hung up on maybe one or two gifts, not looking at the big picture, right? When I approach God with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I say, God, I just want to be a willing vessel. Whatever you have for me, I'll take it, right? I just want to be a, using, uh, a usable, willing vessel for you. There are things that I pray for. I pray for God to give me the gift of wisdom because I think in my role, I need it, especially because I'm young and do stupid things. I need God's wisdom. I pray for God's discernment because I want to be able to be in a situation and say, there is something wrong with this. I want to be able to discern the situation. So I pray for those things. But besides that, I say, God, whatever you want to do. Let me tell you what happens, though, when you ask for that. You better be careful because God may do some stuff through you that you, might totally shock you, right? Totally surprise you. And that's okay. If you want to invoke the Holy Spirit in your life, simply do what Jesus tells us to do. Follow His commands, right? And here's the last thing. Here's where I want to challenge you. If you want the Holy Spirit to work in you, you need to find a place tonight, tomorrow, soon, Make a pot of coffee or make a cup of tea. Sit down somewhere quietly by yourself and converse with God. I'm not talking about in your head. Talk to Him and say, God, I need your Holy Spirit in my marriage. I need it with my kids. 
I need it at my job. I need it when I speak to my family. I need it when I deal adversity, with adversity. I need you in every single facet, every single corner of my life, God. I need it to just be covered with your Holy Spirit, God. I need you so bad. And we need to reach that place where we're just inviting Him in. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit can do for us. This is one out of thousands of stories, and I look out amongst you guys, and I could tell so many stories about how God has just done amazing things with people who are willing. Uh, there's a couple, I won't tell you their names. There's a couple that came into my office not too long ago and, and uh, been married for a while, and they got some kids that are a little bit older, and not, not you know, real older, but, but older. And, and uh, they came in, and uh, they sat on my love seat, and they sat as far as one can possibly sit away from another person on my love seat, right? There's not a whole lot of room there, but they were far pushed up against the armrest. They weren't talking to each other. Their marriage was on the rocks, and they wouldn't look at each other, and very argumentative and kind of snide. And, and so I started getting into them, right? Hey, tell me about you. Tell me about your family. And we just started at the beginning, and we just started talking, right? And then I went to the husband. Hey, tell me about you. Tell me what's going on. And he was really making some breakthroughs, and we were talking. We were just kind of counseling with each other. And at the end, I prayed, and I said, God, Lord, let your Holy Spirit touch this couple. And they prayed with me, and they said, God, Lord, you know, touch our marriage. Lord, let your Holy Spirit touch our, our marriage. And so I turned around, I got up, and I went to open the door, and in my peripheral vision, I looked over and I saw the husband grab his wife by the shoulders, and he said, forgive me, I've been wrong. And he just started crying. And so I sat there, and I, they didn't know that I caught that. And I just kind of opened the door and I said, hey, we'll see you guys in a couple of weeks, right? And it was about four or five weeks later, we, we meet, right? So they come in the second time. They sit down on my couch, but they sit as close together as two humans can sit on my couch, right? They kick off their shoes, they're all cuddled up, like hands on each other's legs. And I'm like, hey, you guys want me to like, I'll put on a movie and leave or something? I mean, you, um, you know, whatever, you're married. Um, and they were looking at each other, and they would compliment each other, and they would say nice things about each other. And listen, it's still not perfect. They're still working through things. We're still meeting. We're still praying. We're still growing. There's still frustrations. But when we invite the Holy Spirit in, we start to act in a way that we can't act without Him. We start to find humility. We start to find grace. We start to look at people and we look at them differently, not with a judgmental, harsh eye, but we start to look at them like Jesus. We start to do things that are beyond our capability. Why? Because it's bigger than us. But if we will be humble enough to say, God, I'm sorry, I need you. God, fill me up with your Holy Spirit and do something. If all of us were to be that vulnerable, and if we were to put our comforts aside and say, God, whatever you got, bring it, that you will start to see amazing things happen, not just to you and in you, but all those around you will be positively affected by it. You'll see your men, you'll see your tempers go away. Women, you'll see your attitudes change. Children, you will start to respect authority greater. Older people in the room, you will start to look at this generation differently. Things will change when we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. We have neglected the side of God. And I think it's time for some of us to say, I want all of you. I don't just want the Father and the Son. I need the Spirit too. I need all of you. And if we'll do that, it'll greatly change our lives. This communion around you guys, we do it every single week. And I know some of you check out at this point, but hold on with me. There's communion all the way around you. When we take that, that doesn't just represent the body and blood of Jesus that died on the cross. It does do that, right? That Jesus died for us. Do you know what else that it represents? 
that through that cross and through the crucifixion, there was a curtain in the temple, in the synagogue, right? There was a curtain that was about 18 feet tall. That's roughly about the size of this ceiling all the way down to the floor. And this curtain, this big, thick curtain, separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now, what happened in the Holy of Holies is the presence of God was in this specific area, right? And when Jesus, you can go back and read this. When Jesus was on the cross in the King James Version, it says that he gave up the ghost. I just love that. He gave up the ghost. He breathed his last breath. And it says at that moment, the earth shook and the curtain that separated the Holy Spirit of God from all of humanity, it says that curtain ripped from the top all the way to the bottom. And for once and for all, no longer did the Holy Spirit of God dwell in a building. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us. That's what that communion... That's what that communion represents. It's more than just your sins are forgiven. It's that no longer is Jesus next to you. Jesus is now in you, in you. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we thank you. We praise you. My prayer right now, God, for every man, woman, child in this room, Lord, is that you would start to fill us with your spirit. Lord Jesus, God, let us display the fruit of the spirit. Let us work in the gifts of the spirit, Lord. Let us trust in your spirit. Reveal the scripture to us by the power of your spirit. Help us love people by your spirit, God. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's not a believer, Jesus, Lord, let them come up to the front and ask some questions to the people on the right and left who are doing prayer. If there's anyone who needs prayer, Lord, let them seek out prayer. And Lord God, as we take communion, we thank you for your son that died for us, Jesus. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we lift you up, and it's in your name that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, there's communion all the way around you at the tables. There'll be people up at the right and left to pray. Please make yourself at home. Thank you so much.